excited to be kicking off our first round of the Shadow Play Speaker Series. My name is Elisa Polizzi, and I am your host today, along with Aaron Rogerson. Say hello, Aaron. And uh, hey, everyone. And the Shadow Play Speaker Series is a brand new kickoff here at the STOA. Uh, we'll be having a collection of discussions with the extended Yugian community and beyond where we're hoping to explore a wide range of topics regarding the shadow in all its forms and manifestations. So today we're joined by Dr. James Hollis, renowned Jungian analyst, author, and public speaker. Dr. Hollis just released his newest book, Prisms, Reflections on this Journey We Call Life. And today we'll be diving into the archetype of the wounded healer, cultivating one's personal myth, crises of meaning, and anything else that might come alive during this discussion. Um, the discussion will take place for about 20 to 30 minutes, and that'll be followed by a Q&A portion. So as we talk to Dr. Hollis, please throw your questions in the chat and we will call on you during the Q&A to unmute yourself and ask your question. This is going to be recorded and posted to YouTube. So if for any reason you don't want your face on video or you don't want your voice captured, you can uh, communicate that in the chat with your message and we will read the question for you. All right, so let's get things started. Dr. Hollis, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? Let me see, I've got you muted. Let me see. Can you hear me now? Yes, perfect. How are well, you doing today, Dr. I'm Hall? fine, thank you. And uh, thank you for inviting me and I look forward to our conversation. Wonderful, yes, we are pleased to have you at the STOA. And I thought that we would kick off today's session kind of turning a bit to the fundamental uh, definitions of the shadow. Uh, this is a fundamental Jungian concept, but mm -hmm. it's made its way into the general culture, which I have found often leads to a bit of misunderstanding or a lack of clarity around what the shadow is. So uh, Dr. Hollis, can you give us just a brief description of the shadow and how we interact with it throughout our lives? Mm -hmm. Well, the shadow represents those parts of ourselves or those parts of our organizations which when we bring into conscious awareness, we find troubling. They may be inconsistent with our values. They may remind us of the things we don't want to know about ourselves. Or in some cases, they can actually be summons to a larger life, which we find threatening and in, in, intimidating. So the shadow is that which uh, the ego has some sort of motive for keeping in the shadows, because if it's not in the shadows, it's gonna have to deal with it in some way. So the shadow briefly manifests in four basic ways. Most commonly, it's operating unconsciously. So it spills into the world through our relationships, our choices, and so forth. Or we want to disown it, so we project it onto someone else. We call them lazy. We call them overly ambitious. They call, we call them whatever because that way we can, uh, you know, absent ourselves from any accountability of that within ourselves. Or thirdly, we can get caught up in it and just be carried by that energy. And that happens frequently in people's lives and even the lives of countries. And fourthly, it becomes conscious and then we're accountable. There's something now we have to deal with. I think the wisest thing ever said about the shadow came from the Latin poet Terence over two millennia ago, who said, nothing human is alien to me. 
And if I accept the truth of that, then I have to say, all right, within me are all human impulses and motives. I may not want to acknowledge them. I may not want to lay claim to them. But if they're there, and why would I be exempt in the human DNA? If they're there and I'm not being mindful around them, then probably they're spilling into the world unconsciously through me. So very briefly, that's the shadow. It's very complex, as you can imagine. Yeah, a lot of different dynamics. And I think during our talk today, we'll start pulling some of those apart. Um, but maybe we'll move on to some of the main topics of today's talk with the wounded healer to start with. All right. Yeah, in your new book, you have a chapter, I believe, that's dedicated to the wounded healer. And I think a lot of people drawn to communal spaces like this, um, like the Stoa, um, they feel a strong resonance with this archetype, both because they feel wounded or they have uh, a history of wounding in their life, but also because they feel drawn towards um, healing others or helping the world or teaching people. Mm -hmm. And um, can you explain the archetype of the wounded healer and why it might be so relevant today? Mm -hmm. Certainly. Well, there is within each of us, obviously, a child who has suffered in life and been uh, traumatized in various ways. And the question always then is, all right, so how does that get storied in us? How does that play out in terms of our behaviors, our understanding of self and world, our defenses and so forth? And <clears throat> often people who are in professional settings as healers, whether it's clergy, nursing, therapy, whatever, often have been the sensitive child in a family has come from a, a troubled family, a, troubled, a family where the you know, the, the disorders in the system were, were so palpably experienced by that child. And so that child gets identified with trying to do something about it, trying to provide some homeostasis. And that rolls over often into an adult identification with that. Or if one's not in one of those overt helping professions, one often has that motive rising to the surface in um, our, our relationship, whether it's parent-child or intimate relationships or whatever. So there's something in us that's always wounded and either sort of serving the wound, trying to run from it or trying to fix it in some way. But there's also something in us that's seeking to heal the wounds of other people. And part of the reason for that, and this touches on shadow, is if, if you're going to be all right, then my environment, my relational dynamics are going to be much more healthful for me. You know, the child tries to heal the family, so to speak can't quite bring that project off, but then he or she can be bound to that in their relationships in the future or even in their work and so forth. And given that kind of history and realizing there's all of that unprocessed material in a person's life, you can see why its continued activation in subsequent decades can lead to stress, burnout, depression, substance abuse, and, and so forth. So it's a very complex um, phenomenon. It's in all of us to some degree, but for certain people more so than others. And so it seems like you're starting to touch a little bit upon some of the shadow sides of the wounded healer or when that archetype is constellated um, through the kind of negative pole uh, or it's acting a bit more unconsciously. Can you speak mm -hmm. just a little bit more deeply to the shadow elements of the wounded healer, maybe when that archetypal pattern is operating outside of consciousness? Sure. 
<clears throat> well, first of all, when I was a student at the Jung Institute in Zurich, it was rumored among the students that um, <clears throat> one of the questions we might be asked was, why did you enter analytic training? And if the answer was, I want to help other people, um, that's, a, that's not a good answer. <laughs> the, the assumption was you're just not very much in touch with the fact that you're trying to heal yourself. And if you don't begin working on that, you're not going to be very much good for other people in any case. I mean, that's a shadow dimension. I can, I can sort of get rid of my own pains and difficulties by dealing with yours or working with it out here in the external world. Uh, and as a result of which, um, wounded healers are, are folks who are quite prone to boundary violations, uh, could get caught in a folia do, a mutual complex where you wind up agreeing uh, too much with the client or, or extend yourself too much to try to really take control of their life, which is not appropriate. There are a thousand temptations that rise from that person seeking to sort of, again, uh, heal my environment. So that's the world in which I live. And so <clears throat> I can't say this statistically, but I, I have the intuition from time to time that about half the people who are in the helping profession should be there. That's their calling. And half of them are sort of driven there by this sort of archaic but understandable need for healing themselves. And whatever is not healed in me is going to spill in my relationships, whether it as, as a parent, as a partner, or as a nurse or therapist or, or whatever. Would you say that through healing others, one heals themselves? Is that sort of a dangerous kind of thing to manifest if you are a healer? Does that need to be sort of uh, kept apart from each other? Like you heal yourself on your own time and you heal others in this sort of separate sphere, or can they kind of be one in the same? Well, the answer to that, I think, is yes and no. You know, it's, it's both and. <clears throat> the central aspect of training in Jungian training is the personal analysis. Based on Jung's comment, you can never take a person any further than you've traveled yourself. And I think that's patently true. Um, and I, I, would, I would say, having worked with people for over four decades now, there's something healing in the process of doing that because I can't help but learn from the process and reflect upon myself and so forth. The danger, though, is where I start living my life through them or, again, being so identified with them. That's why I have to have a separate process or a separate world where I tend to my own business. Um, you know, the people who think that I could just apply, say, clinical training applications to a, a situation uh, sooner or later are going to get ambushed by whatever is unaddressed in their own psychological history, which is why self-awareness, self-knowledge is the single best preparation we can have for doing this work. In 1994, you wrote Under Saturn's Shadow, The mm -hmm. Wounding and Healing of Men. And um, the wounding of men is something that I'm definitely very interested in. Um, how do you think the challenges facing men have changed since 1994? And in what ways do you think we're failing to heal men or that men are failing to heal themselves? Well, interestingly enough, it's a subject that I had avoided in my own personal uh, writing and uh, personal reflection too often. 
I was given the assignment at the time by the Philadelphia Young Center to give a talk on the psychology of men. And I thought, what do I have to say about that? And then I found myself facing resistance. And of course, wheresoever there is resistance, there into our fears. So I had to ask myself, what are the fears here? And what came back was a voice that said, but we don't talk about this, right? And I thought, oh, that's interesting. And and I thought, what is it you don't talk about? And then I realized my summons there was to talk about that which you don't talk about. So I, I started thinking about what is it that we got conditioned through or by, and what is it we don't talk about among with ourselves or among with other men? And you know, then it started pouring out, and and one of which was, of course, very simply, all boys are enlisted very early in a conspiracy of silence, because the moment you open up, you're not only going to be ridiculed, you're going to be shamed. And most men, it doesn't, doesn't mean this doesn't happen with women. The difference is women usually have the capacity to share that with someone else. For a man, your personal shame is your biggest secret. That's why you either serve it by self-sabotaging behaviors or you're caught in a life of grandiosity and denial and machoism and, and so forth, you see. So self-estrangement is the single biggest wound. And, you know, if I'm, if I'm a stranger to myself, how can I be in a healthy relationship with you? If, if I may say, I've said this to women's groups who've asked me to talk about those strange creatures called men. If you could imagine three situations, first of all, your close friends, the people you would share your worries about with your marriage or your children or your body or whatever's going on, those people are banished from your life forever. You have to keep that within. Secondly, your connection to your guiding source, whether you call it your intuition or your instinct or whatever you want to call it, that's severed. And thirdly, that your worth as a human being would be defined predominantly by your capacity to achieve ex, uh, extensive uh, sort of external goals of productivity, that you're being defined by your performance out there, your resume, your batting average, so to speak. And that's who you are as a human being. If you can imagine these three conditions, then, then you'll experience something of the average man. And most women have properly been horrified and have often said, well, that's so, so isolating. You'd be so lonely. And I said, that's exactly the case. And when I wrote that book, I got the, some of the saddest letters from around the world where people were saying, I always thought something was wrong with me. I didn't know other men had these kinds of feelings and so forth. So the, the value of that book, in my view, and I had to fight the personal battle first, as I told you, was... Um, to, to try to break some of the hold the secrets have on men's lives and to talk about the secret fears and how men's lives are governed as much by fear as women's lives. They just, you know, respond to it differently and have different kinds of defenses. Thank you, Dr. Hollis. Um, so you often speak in your work about the importance of cultivating one's personal myth uh, mm -hmm. How does one begin this process, and what do you feel are the challenges as one begins to develop their own myth? Well, we have to define, first of all, what do we mean by myth? I'm talking now, then, about the energy-laden images that are at work within us, and 
complexes are splinter myths. Whenever a complex is triggered, which is part of anyone's history, and it has the power to rise and usurp my consciousness, it makes decisions for me. So I'm, we're serving these splinter mythological systems all the time. And I use the word myth as a neutral word. It's neither positive or negative. It's how is it playing out in your life? And so, you know, we're on automatic pilot a good part of our time on, on this planet. But just as the first half of life is about how do I respond to the demands of the external world? What do my parents want from me? What does the school teacher want from me? What do my playmates want from me? What is the you know, the, the uh, university one for me, what is the partner, the employer, all these people are responding to the world out there. And we have to develop an ego competent and capable enough of meeting those needs. And somewhere in midlife, and it varies from person to person, you have to sort of sit back for a moment and say, but now what do I do? Or why am I here really? Or what is this journey about? And sometimes that doesn't happen until a person's very late in life. They're facing serious illness or death of a spouse or aging and mortality and so forth. And in those moments, you, you have an encounter, an appointment with yourself that's been long uh, delayed. And in the second half of life, the real question is, what is wanting to enter the world through me? In other words, in what way am I a vehicle for the expression of more life. That's a different kind of question rather than how do I fit in? How do I get my needs met? How do I stay out of harm's way? All of which are important, legitimate questions for a child. But if they govern the second half of life, one is still bound by fate to a disempowering life. So the, the real question in the second half of life is what is wanting expression in me? Because we, we all have within us enthusiasms, interests, talents, and so forth that got left far behind because of the need to make all these adaptations. And then the claims of the outer world to, to you know, be reciprocal in relationship, earn a living, be a responsible parent, et cetera, et cetera. So as, as Jung said once, you know, life's a short pause between two great mysteries. Well, stop and think about this. This is a very short time here. And this time is mysterious too. What do you think it's about? The great mysteries of birth and death, <laughs> they'll take care of themselves. But right now, we have some accountability. What do you think this pause is about? What are you supposed to be doing with your life? What, do you, what is your life meant to be? Other than simply a taxpayer, a person playing certain roles, maybe good roles, but still playing roles. The end of the journey, would you be able to say, you know, I was here. I, I showed up in the best way I could. And, and then you're beginning to explore what's the personal myth. That is to say, what's the deep individuation impulse or the deep uh, sort of spiritual drive that is wanting expression that's to be found really in, in each of us. Now, in my own life, the one thread that's been running through everything has been learning and teaching. And I, I found um, my early school teachers were my heroes because they were opening a world to me. They were showing me alternatives. They were showing me bridges and pathways out of something and uh, very much enriching my life. And I've never lost the enthusiasm for teaching. I've spent my life since I was five years old teaching one way or the other, perhaps in annoying ways to some people. But um, uh, I, I think that's what I, I was called to be a teacher. That's all. And that's everything. And I'm 
prefer. That's a vocation. I'm not talking about job. It's also been a job, but it, it, vocation is calling. What are you called to as a human being? And there are different arenas, such as relationship, being a parent or being a partner, being a citizen. Those are legitimate claims on us. But you're also called to an appointment with your own soul. And what is your soul asking of you? And that's where shadow stuff comes in, because the world's full of distractions. Popular culture is primarily a system of distraction. So you don't have to ask that question. And then say, all right, if I don't ask that question, what's happening to it? Well, something inside is going to pathologize. That's what's going to happen. You're going to be spending more time self-medicating or in a depression or in, in a f- living a fugitive life than you ever expected. So, you know, <laughs> psyche is, is really, and of course, remember, psyche is the Greek word for soul. Your, your soul is going to, in the end, always bring you back to encounter, as, as Hamlet, he said, you know, to be or not to be, that's the question. Well, what does that mean for me? And, and therein, too, is, is really where one has to work with their personal story or their personal myth. You uh, made an interesting contrast that maybe we could dive a little deeper into the, the difference between your job and your vocation, mm-hmm. let's say. And I'm wondering if you think that most people out there struggle with having a deep rift between their job and their vocation, or if people do actually tend to find them to be one and the same, if they, if they can, if they can like make it there in life. What, what do you think about that? Well, you know, as Thoreau said, most people live lives of quiet desperation. And sadly, most people have never really had a choice. They've simply been forced by the harsh exigencies of life to, to take a job, any job, to pay the bills and have food on the table. But um, again, a vocation is not to be confused with job. Your vocation may be found in your, the field of your relationships. The vocation may be found in your life of meditation, the work of your hands. It can be in contemplation. It can be in all possible areas of life. How you pay your bills is a separate question. Now, it's certainly true from time to time, individuals bring the vocation and their their sort of life's journey together, which is actually what I've been lucky to do and, of course, worked very hard to try to do. You know, I decided early that, that um, you know, making money was not the goal of my life uh, or, or trying to, to achieve popularity or something like that, which are understandable human impulses. But I, I kept saying to myself, even as a child, what does this mean and what is it about? And is, is that the right path for me? And, and those are healthy questions. And you need to keep asking those childlike questions the rest of your life because something inside of us always knows. Jung put it this way once. He said, every time a therapist starts a new client, they need to ask the question, what is this person's neurosis helping him or her avoid? Because usually we understand there's something in us that that knows what's right for us about the relationship you're in or the the job you're in or something like that, but we're threatened by what we know or intimidated by it or, or prefer to sort of slip slide away. 
And then, of course, we have to welcome psychopathology because the truth is the psyche is always going to be speaking. And when we avoid its encounter, it simply will intensify, intensify its, its protest. And we call those things symptoms. So. Thank you, Dr. Hollis. I think we would like to start uh, doing a bit of Q&A with our audience. We've got some really great questions in the chat right now. So early on, Robert, uh, Robert Gray, you asked a really great question. Do you want to unmute yourself and ask Dr. Hollis your question? Yes, this is so exciting. Thank you for, for doing this. So I'm, I'm reading and in and part of a book club about the wisdom of Hypatia. And, and they talk about the, the transpersonal daemon. I'll just read it really quick. It says, mm -hmm. yeah. in scientific terms, it is an unconscious regulatory system common to all humans. And then in parentheses, a collective unconscious rooted in innate neural structures. And then the question I typed into the chat, I'll just kind of quickly read uh, as well. What do you think about the stoic notion of a transpersonal daemon as a source of personal normativity? and of dialoguing with your daemon as a spiritual or personal practice. Yes. Well, it's, it's ironic you mentioned that because in the introduction of the new book, Prisms, that just came out last week, I talk about how, and I, and I pronounce it daimon, there are different pronunciations, but the daimon <clears throat> is an ancient Greek concept that represents the guiding spirit between us and the gods, so to speak, uh, sometimes known as the muse, um, but it's, it's that, that voice in us or that impulse that is pushing us to be the vehicle of life, as I said. And uh, so in the, in the preface to the book, I keep saying, you know, I've, each time I've finished a book, this was the 17th, that's enough. You know, I'd rather take off my evenings. I work all day as a therapist in the evenings. You want me to work more? Leave me alone, you know. And Diamond just laughs at that, so to speak, and starts nudging me. And if I don't pay attention, I start waking at four o'clock and there it is. And several of the books have started at four o'clock in the morning. So the, the daimon is in a sense that inner knowing that summons that accountability that is transpersonal because it's not tied to my ego structure. It, the people you would admire most in history are people who one way or the other often listen to their daimon. And maybe they suffered greatly for it. It has no particular investment in our comfort or safety. It's, it has to do with your, your, again, calling as a human being in this time and place, swathed in mystery, if you will, you're still called to embody something. And, and your daimon is, is the thing that the voice within that is pushing that or summoning or calling to account. And um, that's a very deep dialogue. And I've often said to people who are starting analysis in the second half of life, this is not about fixing you because you're not broken. It's not about solving certain problems because usually you outgrow them sooner or later. It's about having a deeper conversation around the meaning of your own journey. Now, I'm privileged at times to be part of that conversation, but the deepest conversation is intrapsychic. To be able to, I said to someone earlier, just a couple of hours ago, who had a very perplexing and troubling dream, but I said, you have to remember, your psyche is never against you. Your body is not against you. They are 
nature naturing nature seeking its own well-being and and it's trying to break through to us and call us to some kind of cooperative response that our psyche has two goals as far as i can see one is our growth and development and and one is self-healing and in both cases these are autonomous processes so if i avoid that kind of conversation then again what am i responding to the most insistent voices out there or the most demanding of my complexes from my history. I'm, I'm never absent of traffic in here. You can count on that. But the question is, how do I sort through and sift to discern which voices come from my own soul? And the diamond is simply a, a vehicle, a, a metaphor for the communication between that mystery and consciousness. And, and separate that from the, the noise and din uh, that uh, we're being beset by every single day. It's a good question. Uh, Laura, do you want to unmute yourself and ask your question? Yeah, so thank you um, so much, Dr. Hollis, for joining. And thank you, Alyssa and Anne, for hosting. I, I kind of want to be brief because so many other people have great questions. But I was just wondering, um, yeah, just how do you process institutional trauma or shadow <laughs> when the institution is so large and so entrenched that it hasn't even begun to really acknowledge it, but it's obviously acting it out on, on members often pretty vulnerable to begin with. Sure, sure. Well, I didn't have a chance to explore the whole idea of the shadow because it's so complex, as, as we've been saying. In fact, the book with the title I hate, it was chosen by the publisher, is Why Good People Do Bad Things. That's the book on the shadow, if you want to follow that up there. But there's also a collective shadow, that is to say, to be found in the world outside of us, such as in government and universities and churches and, and psychological societies and hospitals. Every organization will carry the sum of the complexes of the people involved. So you can have a noble institution like a religious institution whose purpose is to transmit a certain kind of set of values <clears throat> and so forth. And, and yet it's, it's inhabited by human beings who carry their own pathologies. And what happens in institutions typically over time is they move from their guiding principles to two other principles, self-preservation of the institution and the privileging of its administration or priesthood or professorship or whatever you want to call it, you see. And therefore they can be tremendously flawed. For example, most nations teach their children, we are the ones who wear the white hat in history's drama. But if you look very carefully into the history of any country, you're going to see enormous barbarism. You'll see enormous exploitation of vulnerable populations, and you'll see what the cost of, the, of, of progress may be, you see. So the, the, the shadow is collective as well as personal. And uh, Sometimes individuals have to have the courage or the desperation to call those institutions to account. And sometimes when they do, they, they pay a heavy price for that too. There are a lot of martyrs in the history of uh, human, humankind that show the price of uh, pointing out the shadow. But uh, at least you, you know what you're talking about. So you're not wrong, Laura. All right. Yeah, I was, oops. Sorry. Go ahead, Laura. Just a brief. I was thinking about religious institutions in particular, where there is that kind of spiritual 
authority. So yeah, thank you. Your comment was Irene, did you like to ask your question? Sure. Thank you so much, Alyssa, and Haran for facilitating this. But most importantly, I don't know if I'll ever get the chance to do this, but Dr. Hollis, it is truly the honor of my life to be sitting in on this call. Um, your work has, has saved me from the life that I honestly thought I was fated to live. And I did not know if I would ever have this opportunity to reflect back to you the impact that you've had. And I know the humility that you always bring to all of your interviews and all of your podcasts where you always state you are simply the mediator and the messenger. But um, I just wanted to reflect back my deep gratitude um, that you have been possessed by that diamond, mind, body, and soul, because it's truly impacted so many of us. So thank you so much. Um, my question, I don't even know if I formulated it correctly. It's something that I'm personally grappling with because of my own personal experiences that catalyzed my process of individuation. But um, I ask, how might the process of death psychology, and what I mean by that is this necessary return into our narrative, into the, the deaths and the aspects of ourselves that have splintered off, that we need to reintegrate, how might that process be at odds with these more new age spiritual modalities of healing that argue that, for instance, just meditating and having a deeply spiritual meditative practice can rewire our neural circuitry um, enough so that complexes are dissolved because the individual manifests new emotions to replace the traumatic emotions that have been somatized in the body or imprinted in our nervous system. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't know if I'm phrasing that correctly, but any insight on this uh, would be truly appreciated. Well, let me just say, I, I'm, I'm grateful if those books have been helpful to you in any way. I am just the messenger, so I appreciate your gratitude, but let's thank the, the diamond, so to speak. So I, I, I wish you well. Uh, anything that we try that actually gives us access to those split off parts, and you're absolutely right, the, the psyche is, is, is hammered at times and fractures, and, and those disparate parts sometimes will act out independently. You wonder, why did I do this? Why did I choose that person? Why this pathway and so forth? And that's where one of those splintered paths was exercising its autonomy. Um, and, and at the same time, if that practice, whether it's meditation or writing or dream work or whatever, helps you become more aware of and be able to, so to speak, dialogue with that, that it's inherently healthy for you. There are a lot of practices out there that actually lead people away from it. You know, there's, there's, there's a sense of it's like it can be a, a game. You can do all the right things for the apparent right reason, but it, it doesn't necessarily lead you to that healing process, you know. Sooner or later, one always has the question, what is it I'm avoiding here in my life? And I can't overemphasize, I'm sorry to say, the power of fear and anxiety in our lives. They are the chief motivators <clears throat> because life is difficult and dangerous and then you die. So you have to be mindful of that. And so our system is infinitely adaptable. And that's the good news because it can adapt to all kinds of conditions but the paradox is those same adaptations also become problematic to us because to the degree we get identified with them, then they oper operate pretty much autonomously in other areas. So, for example, 
if as a child I learned that conflict was so terrifying or so threatening, well, I can naturally avoid conflict. But then flash forward a few decades and say, all right, now conflict avoidance per se is not necessarily a good thing. That's why we always have to ask the pragmatic question, not what am I doing, but what is that in service to inside of me? So I might persuade myself I'm being a peacemaker, I'm, 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 I'm conflict resolution here, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But maybe that's just the defense of the child's inability or, in, you know, fear of confronting this situation. And if I'm totally conflict avoidant, <clears throat> I will not have any values as a human being. Because as a human being, as an adult, you have to have values you care enough about to, to you know, fight for them if need be, to embody them in your life. So, again, there's, that's why we can't prescribe for another person what is the right path for them. But there is a path for them that is right for them, and they need to discover that themselves. So uh, I, I would always apply the test of pragmatism here if a certain practice, and there are a lot of gurus out there. That's part of the problem. You know, a lot of people who set themselves up as sort of giving you in five easy steps or, you know, 30 days to this or that uh, solutions to these problems, but, but they betray the depth and the dynamics of the human soul. And sooner or later, you, you come to that. The one thing you have to learn <clears throat> is a radical trust to know your nature is not against you. There are elements inside that are hostile to your well-being, that's for sure, and you have to be mindful of them. But overall, your system is a self-correcting system. It's a self-healing system. For if I cut my arm, <clears throat> I'm not healing it. The physician's not healing it. The physician has to sort of see to the conditions which facilitate healing, but nature is doing the healing. That's why I say in the end, there are two elements here, self-healing and growth and development. And ironically, your growth and development will cause you to perhaps take more risks, be more accountable, be more of a grown-up than is ever comfortable. But that's what your life is asking of you. So thank you for your kind comments, Irene. I appreciate it. All right, Jack, do you want to unmute yourself and ask your question? Sure. Uh, seems like I'm out of order, but fine with that. Um, hi, Dr. Hollis. It's very nice to meet you. Um, context, the context of my question is I recently started a relationship which basically began as like, hey, I'm wounded and you're wounded and we're both on this path of like trying to heal and discover ourselves. So like, why don't we like get together and like kind of do that in like a collaborative way? And um, it hasn't definitely hasn't been like easy. Um, there have been a lot of challenges and I'm just wondering like if you have any thoughts on like people being in romantic relationships and like using that to catalyze mutual healing. Is that a good thing? Is that like, are there dangers to that? Um, how much of this should we be doing like ourselves to ourselves and how much should we be doing like within the context of our relationships? Well, <clears throat> Jack, those are profound questions. <laughs> and um... You know, you start off with a good idea. It's uh, actual activation and uh, completion is going to be very perilous, I can assure you. Um, you know, you, first of all, you have to try to heal yourself. 
to the degree you can. Because there is a there's a bottom line secret in relationships is that my relationships with others can be no more evolved than I'm in relationship to myself. Because that's what I'm bringing to the table. That's what I'm dumping on you, you see. So, you know, see to yourself first before you try to fix the other. Now, relationship can be healing. There's certainly something profoundly healing about being held, about being uh, heard, about being understood, and, and about someone you realize who is on your side, so to speak. That, that's a marvelous aspect of all relationships. But I think that's probably all we can reasonably expect from others. Um, the, the rest of the work we have to do ourselves. And, you know, I explored that more fully in the book, uh, The Eden Project, because there is a, a deep archetypal desire in each of us to return to this paradisical state of, you know, infinite child. We bring to the other an inordinate uh, weight of expectations and projections. And, you know, we say we value relationships, but why are so many broken and so forth? And why do so many end in bitterness and re recrimination? Um, and, and then you begin to realize, well, look what we brought to the table. It's, it's too much to carry, you see. So I, I think realistic expectations from relationship is part number one. But the subtitle of that book is The Search for the Magical Other. There's always that in us that's expecting the other to make it work for us. If we're really lucky, they'll fix our lives and we don't have to grow up and do it ourselves, you know. So, um, you know, good luck with your relationship. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's going to be um, an interesting journey. Realize in the end, you always have to come back to yourself and, and a personal accountability because one of the ways to put this always is, um, in what way is my history playing out in my choices and my behavioral patterns? And, um, you know, what do they make me do or what do they keep me from doing? And that's, that's a question of each person having to look within. And, and the other can't fix that for us. And sometimes people are drawn together precisely to reactivate those old wounding patterns. So you have to watch out for that too. The worst case, if a person's been severely abused, they might, let's say, connect with an abuser because there's that repetition compulsion that Freud talked about, you see, that it fits, as it fits into your, your understanding of self and world, you know, and as loathsome as that prospect may be, it has a compelling power and leads to the repetition. So <clears throat> every relationship is fraught with possibilities and huge, huge risks. And, and yet life begins with risk. So you step into it. But I've often said it's one eye open, one eye close. Two eyes means one's hypercritical of others and nothing happens. Um, both eyes closed, you're, you're just walking off a cliff. You don't know what you're doing. So the open eye says, what's going on here? What are we projecting onto each other? What am I asking of this person? Is that legitimate or not? And the closed eye says, and life is a risk. So, you know, you also have to step into the unknown from some time for, for the rest of your life, or you never go anywhere with your journey. So it's almost Zen-like, one eye open, one eye closed. And uh, be watchful, you know. Ultimately, take care of yourself. Not in a narcissistic way, but in a self-caring way. That's what happens with the wounded healer with which we began. And often in these relationships, is our self-care system is broken down. 
And one of the things I talk about in the, in the new book where there's a chapter on the archetype of the wounded healer is how can we attend to the self-care system? Because if, if we're not healing ourselves, how can I be you know, a good parent to my child or a good partner to my wife and, and so forth? So it uh, takes a lot of work, but it's good work. So good luck with you, Jack. All right, Rebecca, would you like to unmute yourself and ask your question? Yeah, totally. Hello. Hello. Um, hey, so as this conversation is like really unfolding, it's kind of it's kind of interesting how it's sort of like my question is kind of being answered already. Um, but but new, new things are coming up. So um, firstly, I really like what you said earlier about um, just like the like how how wet like the words when you like you make me feel this way versus like like actually just like allowing like your feelings and like in relationship to just emerge so I guess speaking on that um yeah like at what point does does this kind of like relational experience on like projection actually like denies us of like any personal responsibility for our own thoughts and feelings like when we are um kind of in this space of like projecting or in this space of um relating to each other when we're trying to like you know process the contents of our unconscious um and then that kind of connects to this this question that i that i wrote into the chat which is how would you describe a distinction between closing our internal and external gaps with like the personal and collective conscious and unconscious versus filling those gaps with these like ideological um, mediators, uh, whether that's, I mean, through a Jungian sense, whether that's, um, you know, just avoidance uh, um, behavior, like habits and behaviors of avoidance or, um, or just actually like showing up and just being like how you're being and like really honoring that process. Um, and then, yeah, like, how do we really know the difference between those things? Because sometimes they do, they very much seem, mm -hmm. seem like they're the same. Well, there are about a dozen questions there, Rebecca, so I can't answer them all. Um, <clears throat> first of all, life will show you in the end um, how much of it was real and how much it was projection. Remember, projection by definition is unconscious. We don't wake in the morning and say, well, I think I'll have a projection before 10 a.m. this morning. Uh, projection means something in your unconscious has been activated, triggered, and it has the power to leave you and enter the world. We make projections all the time. When you wake in the morning, you're projecting that you'll be able to drive to work or you'll be able to brush your teeth. Um, it may not be the case, but you're, you're projecting your history upon the new possibilities. Every moment is new, but part of how our psyche helps us navigate is by bringing our history to it. That's the good news. And that's also the bad news, because whatever it is unexamined in our history can also impose itself on the new range of possibilities. That's why people can have a number of relationships and then, then throw one away after another, saying there's something wrong with this, only to realize later I was the only common denominator in all these relationships. So it was something intrapsychic within me. So the stages of projection are just important here. First of all, something's triggered. It leaves me, enters the world, lands on you or the institution or, or the situation. Secondly, the reality of the other is always going to be different. Therefore, there will be some cognitive dissonance that the other will sort of rub away the shiny aspects of that projection. 
and you begin to say, what's going on here, right? Often the third process, third stage, is the evoking of the power complex. Why, you're not the person I thought you were. Why don't you do this? Or, or let me engage in passive-aggressive behavior to bring you back online. And that's where a lot of relationships crack apart, of course. And fourth is sooner or later the erosion of the projection because the reality of the other will wear through. And that's why so many relationships end with people blaming, you let me down, I thought you were something else, et cetera, et cetera. And they sail on to the next one. Rather than ask the question, what did I put out on you? What was I asking of you? And the heroic question of all relationships is what am I asking of you that I need to be asking of myself? I call it heroic because it summons you to a large accountability in your life. And it's loving also because I'm lifting that off of you. For example, how much parents dump on children to, for the child to make the parent feel good about their lives or live their unlived life. They may not be doing it consciously, but they do it over and over and over. And the child has to carry that and either serve it or spend their life running from it. They're never absent that kind of expectation. So if I own that within myself, it's loving to take it off of you. The fourth stage is if it's going to happen, or the fifth, I lost track. If it's going to happen, is I make that conscious. I realize that's an energy I put out on you. It's energy now available for me to address myself. I'll just give you a quick example. Many years ago, when my last child left college, and came through our town to say goodbye and drive off to Texas to take a job in a company that she'd gotten a position in. And, you know, it was the famous empty nest syndrome. As she drove away, a good part of my heart went with her, right? And um, I, I remember saying to myself, um, what would you say to someone else if, who brought you this you were called by fate, destiny, and your own choices to be a parent, and you, you spent this energy well. Look at her. She's free. She's independent. She's going on her journey. That's far better than the alternatives. Now, the energy invested there has come back to you. What are you going to do with that energy? And literally, if she is driving across the country, I sat down and started writing a book called The Middle Passage. I thought, take that energy and put it into something else. So the, the parenting, if you will, the creative process went from an investment in a relationship in the outer world to an investment in a relationship to something that was wanting expression from the inner world. So uh, again, you ask many questions. These, this is a response to one or two of those. So maybe we should move to someone else. Um. Do you have time for one more question, two more questions, maybe? Sure, sure. Yes, okay. I do. Okay. Chantal, would you like to ask your question? Thank you. Um, I was interested earlier, the phrase you used when you said complex, our complexes are like a splinter myth. I thought it was mm -hmm. really interesting. And I was wondering, when we're trying to find our myth, mm -hmm. our purpose, um, how easy, how do we untangle these splinter myths, these things that come from our fears that kind of drive us deep down and, and color everything? 
mm-hmm. how do we untangle that from trying to find our our true um, individuation mm-hmm. impulse? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, see, that's the big question of all, and it's the question you'll always be with the rest of your life because it's not finally solved. Um, <clears throat> you you have the, many times people said, "How do I start this process?" And I I would say, "All right." Look at your life as objectively as you can. Look to the patterns. And typically, you don't rise in the morning and say, well, today I'm going to do the same stupid counterproductive things I've done for decades here. But chances are you will. Why? Because there are these clusters of energy in there, i.e. complexes, that we have that are making those choices for us. And patterns are usually the sort of repetitive response to those driving energies. Some of our complexes are healthy and helpful to us, and some are, you know, fear-based and infantilizing when they show up. I I was just talking to somebody again earlier this morning about in in a marriage situation, classic dilemma, that one party was always afraid of encroachment and overwhelmment by the other, and the other one is afraid of abandonment. So that's, that's, you see, it just goes on over and over and over. So the person feels insecure and needful, ask for reassurance. The other person feels that it's like encroachment and backs away, and the person's, you know, needs are, are violated once again, and, you know, the pattern goes on and on and on. So each of them, in a sense, has to face the fear that their life got built around. It wasn't their fault for getting it. Life gives you that. Fate gives you that. Um, Then the question always is the pragmatic question. What does that make me do? What does that keep me from doing? And when you look at the pattern, there's always a logical reason for what you were doing. If you can go back into the premises below, we don't do crazy things. We do logical things based on whatever the sort of message or story or cluster of history is that's been triggered. And therefore your behavior follows from that. So as I gave the example before, conflict avoidance is a common one because as children, we learn I'm tiny and the world is big and I better sort of make my way without producing more conflict between us. Well, all right, then where is that showing up in your life? And what does that keep you from doing with your life? And does that violate your values? Well, there you have a confrontation you have to make. And the thing that you're afraid of is perhaps the the very thing you have to do. Not go seek conflict, but not run from it when it comes up, you see. So for each of us, I mean, it sounds, when people start hearing about individuation, they think it's about some climbing some mountain peak where we've reached a point where it's all resolved and things are clear. No, it's going to be the, the ongoing struggle the rest of your life because the threads of influence within us are infinite and our capacity to make them conscious and to hold to conscious intention is very finite. So there's always that gap. So many times people say, I'm so angry at myself. I thought I got beyond this. And yesterday I was wound up screaming on the phone to my ancient grand, my mother or something, you know, while she's dying in a nursing home somewhere or something. And it's like, here I was again, this, Petulant child. Well, yeah, because that's in you. You didn't help put it there. Life put it there. But now you have to realize that's playing a role in your life. Doesn't mean it won't be triggered a week from now or a month from now, but be mindful when that starts to come up. Now now you have a chance possibly to catch that midway 
and not let it take over the, the, the conversation again. So um, we, we have dreams too that bring to the surface our issues for us. Sooner or later, they'll, they'll present us with an agenda of, of tasks sooner or later. Um, we have the feeling function. We have energy systems that all tell us what's right or wrong for you. Because again, something inside of us always knows what's right or wrong. If I say to you, here's <clears throat> some food with mustard on it, and you hate mustard, well, just because I insist that you like it doesn't mean your system's going to like it. It knows that there's, there's something that's not right for it there, and it will tell you. So the human psyche is always speaking. We have to attend to the tasks of the outer world, but we also have to never forget inside something else is calling for our attentiveness. And when we pay it, and that's what the word therapy means, to listen to or attend to the soul. So psychotherapy is something we all have to practice, not necessarily with the third party, but with our own souls. You know, something is always trying to communicate to me, then I have to find the courage to live as much of that as I can in the outer world out there. And when you do, you experience that as meaningful and something in you rises to support you. The question I always think about is a quote from Jung where he said, we need to find what supports us when nothing supports us. And something inside of all of us in the end has that resilience that uh, loving attitude and, and, and that sense of uh, reciprocal support if, if you are willing to trust it and live it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chantal. All right, so we're coming up on the hour and the end of our first series. So Dr. Hollis, thank you so much for joining us today at the STOA. Um, his new book, Prisms, is out. So Aaron's going to drop in the chat if you guys are interested in learning more about Dr. Hollis's work and all of the, I think, 17 books now at this point you've mm -hmm. published, Dr. Hollis. Um, so much work and so much knowledge that you've given us. So thank you for coming today and for sharing your wisdom. Um, everyone, maybe give them a muted round of applause. And uh, we hope to see you again at the STOA. And thank right. you. You're welcome and best wishes to each of you. Thank you. If you find this podcast useful, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash golden shadow org. If you'd like to keep up to date with our projects, attend one of our live events or work one-on-one -on -one with myself or Aaron, head to www.goldenshadow.org. Thanks for listening. See you later.